Give God praise. Worthy is your name, Jesus. Locate in your Bibles this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to be um, uh, reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. I don't remember when it was, probably when I finished 1 Corinthians, I was asked, or headed to finishing 1 Corinthians, I was asked, what next? And I was like, well, we normally have a nice balance of sort of New Testament, Old Testament, but we'll do Old Testament, and then we'll come to 2 Corinthians. Yeah, well, um, uh, that was 2019, maybe, something like that, early 20, and um, we ended up in Haggai. Then we, then we were in John's Gospel for a bit, for, for looking at the signs of John's Gospel. And then, and then we were in Zechariah for quite a while. So uh, after that, just as the church was entering a, a new phase of its life, there were a number of practical things about church life and identity and structure that we ended up talking about. And so only now, a couple of years after I first mentioned preaching through 2 Corinthians, are we starting it? I've had plenty of time to read it a few times over that period, and um, I'm hopeful that uh, these messages will be blessed. And indeed, I pray that they come at the right time for our life as a church. It's all under the sovereignty of God. So we, we praise Him for leading us to it now. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The text reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You nourish us through it, that You strengthen us by it. We ask, O oh God, that you would, you would help us, that You would encourage us today, that You would build us up through the preaching of Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would um, continually lead us onward and upward in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in His name that we pray and ask it. Amen. 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that we know of that Paul sent to the Corinthians. Think about it this way, if you're a bit thrown by the title. Um, you may, one day when you have died, leave behind some correspondence. And your family will be going through your correspondence and they will find... This letter, maybe another letter, suppose two letters that you've written to someone else or that you have received from someone else. But you know that they had a closer relationship than that. That there was more correspondence. That there were more conversations. That there were personal 
meetings, that there were opportunities for um, face-to-face conversation, and that there were definitely other letters that were written. But there are two that survive. And you might wonder, why did those two survive? Well, just if we're talking about human correspondence, and that's it, you know, letters that you might exchange, then you kept this letter because it was very important, clearly. It was special in some way. There was something that was unique and distinct about it that set it apart from the other pieces of correspondence. When it comes to Scripture, words that are breathed out by God, we know that even if there are other documents that do survive, the early church acknowledged that there are certain documents that bear not only the fingerprints of human authors, but of the Holy Spirit. That He is working in and through this letter, this document, for our good, for our strengthening. So, we need to approach 2 Corinthians with that seriousness. But knowing that Paul actually had a fair amount of correspondence with this church. I won't go into all of the backstory of how this church got started this morning. Um, this evening, I will, will be in Acts chapter 18, and that can be sort of a, a, a footnote explaining sort of how this church came to be and the context in which it was planted. But this particular letter comes many years after that. As I said, it's the fourth letter that we know of that Paul sent to the Corinthians. We can sort of, reading First and Second Corinthians, piece together a bit of a chronology. There was a letter that Paul sent that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, but which we do not have. The actual 1 Corinthians, potentially at least, we do not have. But we have record of a letter that was sent that rebuked the church for their practice of or complicity by tolerance in sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he addresses that. They had broken into factions and different ones were making different claims based on that letter, which apparently was not clear enough to them. So 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing some of those questions, some of those concerns, some of those doubts, as well as responding to some rather troublesome reports about the behavior that was still ongoing in that church. The church at Corinth responded to that letter with a report, with questions, as well as less helpful statements. And so Paul wrote a second letter That is our 1 Corinthians. I hope you're still following me. Paul writes a letter. They respond with questions, clarifications, and some negative reports. Paul writes what we call 1 Corinthians to address all of that. He then follows up in person. We actually read about that at the conclusion of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Paul made a visit and he describes it as a painful visit. It was a very unpleasant time. So unpleasant that Paul decided it was actually counterproductive for him to be in that church. He had planted the church. He had served that church. But the problems that they were experiencing 
um, were, were such that he needed to take a step back so that they could have some, some breathing room and meditate on the lessons that he was seeking to convey. There's another letter that he wrote after that visit. Because he has to clear the air a bit. You, you know, he steps back, but then he has to, to keep pressing. That letter is recorded by, by reference in chapter 2, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians. He describes it as a, an anguished, tearful, severe letter. There's a popular interpretation of that which says that is 1 Corinthians. It's not. If you read 2 Corinthians in its context, it's talking about another letter and it's talking about something entirely different. A letter that came after his visit, which came after his first letter. In response to that painful, tearful, severe letter, many people in the church at Corinth woke up. They realized that they were in sin. They realized that they need to repent. They realized that they've wrongly offended the Apostle Paul. They realized that they need to address um, um, uh, this relationship more properly in an edifying way. And so they apologize. And somehow, whether through sending messengers or through written communication, they make their repentance known to the Apostle Paul. And so at a personal level, he then writes what we call 2 Corinthians, but which is the fourth letter that we know about. I hope I've not lost you in all of that. It's just the ups and downs of someone's communication and correspondence. Do you ever lose track of what emails you've sent or what texts you've exchanged and when and how many and to whom and what occasioned it? You know, some of you are texting me on two different apps sometimes. And I'm like, well, why are we doing this? Let's consolidate. Um, but Paul is, is, is writing to this church and trying to, to, to bring them back to Christ. To see the beauty and glory of Christ and to be a display of the glory of Christ in their church. At a personal level, he writes this letter, our 2 Corinthians, first to assure the church that they are forgiven. To assure them that reconciliation is accomplished by Christ. And therefore, it must be applied by His people. We must work out the applied principles of reconciliation. You know, people are like, ah, oh, the work of reconciliation is already finished at the cross. And they, I've, I've literally seen people use that to speak against talking about applied reconciliation between people who have been at enmity. That is false. I've, I've, I've seen people who are quote-unquote sound. On that subject, they are not. Christ accomplished reconciliation at the cross. We must apply reconciliation to one another. It's written also, I must say, as an at times scathing response to those who would still slander the apostle and his ministry. Those who would call into question his character and his qualifications. Um, that these people are unsettling the church. They are disrupting the peace of the apostle and his ministry and the wider congregation. They are doing the work of Satan, not of God. 
regardless of how confident they are or how spiritual they sound. Some of you would have been around last Sunday night when um, uh, I eschewed the normal approach of explaining the text, and I just read the text. We read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to the end. I prayed, and that was, that was it. It was a great time, at least um, as far as I was concerned. I enjoyed reading it. Um, the Word of God, through the Apostle at this point, is proclaiming reconciliation and urging the practice of reconciliation, but it also repeats the track record of the Apostle. Who He is, what He's done, and what that tells us about Jesus, and how that track record speaks for itself, really, as it might be said, a spirit-filled smackdown to the self-important naysaying of abusive malcontents. And sometimes there are people who come against the messengers of God. People who come against those who are entrusted with the task of proclaiming the gospel. And they're just doing what they know, how they know to do it. And some, so someone takes issue with it. And suddenly that person is just false. Or they're disqualified. Or their character is not as it should be. They shouldn't be the one preaching. And while there are many false prophets and many false preachers, and we should be discerning, before we jump on the bandwagon of discernment and expose and all of that, let's search our own hearts, let's search the Scriptures, let's test even the would-be discerners. We should not be viewing everything through the prism of false teaching. You know, um, uh, this morning I was richly blessed on the high road um, by fellowship, very brief, but with a brother who was out doing evangelism for another church up the road. And I have differences with that church perhaps, some of their distinctive, some of their practice, but here's a man out on the street doing what he can to tell people the gospel before he goes and worships in his church. He's a brother. And I was blessed. I encouraged him. And he encouraged me. I went and I sat down. And um, another man walks up. Uh, who um, is... Um, uh, he looks familiar. I don't know where I've seen him before. And then I see, I see the brother and sister from the Albanian fellowship that we host in the other hall. And I'm like, oh, you're together. And this is a man from Bristol that I'd seen in passing online who is just visiting them for the day. And I just realized what a small world the, the Christian world is. But sometimes there are some people who want to make it smaller. And I, I'm afraid the way is narrow enough. Without, without me having to be nasty and unpleasant to brothers and sisters who are seeking to submit themselves to the Lord and His Word. Just because someone doesn't dot all the I's and cross all of the T's as, as you would or as you would like doesn't mean they're lost. I have to say that. You've heard me many times preach against false, false stuff from this, this platform. But if that's all we hear, we run the risk of creating a cultic environment 
where people leave this place and they see people who know and love Jesus sincerely and they look down on them instead of seeking to build them up. It's intolerable and it should not be a characteristic of us. We love all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We may have warm discussions that may at times represent historically at least, heated disagreements. But I hope that we can regard people as brothers and sisters if they believe the core tenets of the Christian faith. Well, this book is in essence, if I want to summarize it for you, so that you, if, if you go away with nothing else, 2 Corinthians is saying, God in Christ has brought us together. God in Christ has brought us to God. God in Christ has brought us together so that we can relate to each other, so that we can worship together, so that we can enjoy fellowship with each other, so that we can build one another up and stir one another up and encourage one another, so that one's strengths make up for the other's weaknesses and the other's weaknesses humble the other's strengths. This is good news. And it's a part of who we are as, as, um, as followers of Jesus Christ who are reconciled to God in Him. God has brought us together. That's, that's one thing. The second thing, the devil is a liar. My life, my ministry, my character, and the fruit thereof, the Apostle Paul is saying throughout this letter, are proof that God is good, that He's brought us together in Jesus, and the devil is a liar. Let no one and nothing tear us apart. So, what, whatever people are saying, whatever satanic conspiracy is brewing, no one and nothing should be enabled to tear apart the people of God having been reconciled in Jesus Christ. And those who, re who resist the reconciliatory power of the gospel of Jesus Christ quench the Holy Spirit and they resist His work. They have hard hearts. God has brought us together. The devil is a liar. Let no one and nothing tear us apart. That all sounds really strong. But the book is framed by and it's filled with weakness. God's strength is what reconciles and keeps us. It is the power of God working through weak people that vindicates a ministry. It is not the strength of the apostle. It's not the strength of the church. It's not the strength of any individuals within the church. God is strong. We are weak. And so fundamentally, this is a book of... It seems contradictory. It is a paradox, but an intentional one. Strong weakness. The power of God working through our frailty and foolishness. You don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. You don't have to um, cosplay your power and strength. You don't have to convince someone that, 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 that you are you know, all of that. Some of the most popular personalities that are listened to, it seems particularly by men, 
and I hear a lot of Christian men, are people who have been heavily influenced by a philosophical system called Nietzscheanism. So whether your cup of tea is Jordan Peterson on the one hand, or Joe Rogan on the other, you have these, these, these personalities with very popular podcasts, very big platforms, who may get it right sometimes. They may. But just because they get it right sometimes doesn't mean they're righteous. It doesn't mean their worldview is worth imbibing or pursuing or repeating. The whole philosophy of Nietzscheanism is one that's built on the ancient Corinthian philosophy of Stoicism, which taught an indifference to suffering. The Corinthians were in that city. Stoicism was built on the ancient philosophy of Cynicism, which led into Stoicism and was, a, was a, 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 again a, a, a concept of um, sort of, you know, this, this, this life is what we have. It really wasn't looking to the future. It really wasn't looking to eternity. And because of all of that, let's be strong. The whole idea of the ubermenschen, the, 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 the above human, the beyond human, or the um, uh, superman developed. And so now you have a lot of people who, who feel that they have to put on some external show of, of something or other. And I, I, it happens with men and women, but I'm seeing it particularly with men. So I'm, guys, I'm not singling any of you out. I just want you to be aware. Okay? There's, there, 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 there are people who say, sometimes it's jokes, that's fine. But there are others who, who really mean it. Like, there are people who believe that you're more spiritual if you have a beard. I, did, I thought they were laughing. No, they're seriously. Why? Because it, it says something about, you know, we're men. Does it, though? I mean, it, on what basis? What? You know, that's not actually how the Bible defines it. Okay? What does the Bible say? I do see a lot of guys with facial hair that are sort of like, hmm. It's good up until that point. I, 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 I disagree. <laughs> I can say it because I have one. It's not what makes you a man. Some people think that the way they dress, and of course there are clothes that are for men and there are clothes that are for, William, uh, for, for women. But some people think that, again, um, you said cosplaying power. There are people who definitely cosplay their masculinity. You know, and it, it, they're sending some statement about how great they are. Whether it be lumberjack kit or combat gear or whatever. All sorts of things that people will, will attach themselves to to, to, to proclaim to the world something about their strength as though they're trying... And, and you say, I don't know if it's that deep. There are people that are trying to prove something. 
And generally speaking, they're actually very weak and insecure people who would be helped by just admitting that they are weak and insecure in themselves, but they have found their power and their wisdom and their sufficiency in Jesus Christ. I don't know what it is you're trying to prove this morning or what it is that you're, you're trying to convince yourself of or that you're trying to convince um, others of. Maybe it doesn't apply to you. And so if it doesn't, you can move on. But, but if that is you, you don't have to exhaust yourself by trying to be strong. Jesus Christ is strong. Trust in Him. The whole idea of Nietzscheanism was that, that we, we, we should not look to, to eternity. We should not look to the Christian vision of power and strength. We should set, definitely not look to God because um, you know, that's, God is dead. But we should look to ourselves and our own personal improvement and our own advancement and our own power and our own strength. The man who came up with this anti-Christian philosophy died in an insane asylum. He didn't even meet the measure of his own glory, hypothetically. And he still fell far short of God's glory. So, so we, we, we create these systems by which we, we're always aspiring for something. We're always reaching for something. But 2 Corinthians and again and again calls us not to aspire to personal strength, but to aspire to Christ's power and strength. To hold on to it. To trust in Him. Why? Because God in Christ has brought us together. Because the devil is a liar. So let no one and nothing tear us apart. These, these first verses to the Corinthians communicate grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people just skip over that and they say, you know what, Paul's, Paul's an apostle and we know all of that and he's, he's apostle by the will of God and he's with someone else named Timothy and he's writing to this church and collection of churches in the region of Achaia. And then there's this nice little greeting. And then they start preaching from verse 3. But, but it is the grace of God and the peace of God which comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ that helps us to be weak so that we can find that He is strong. It is, it is the grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that tells us you are weak but you're also comforted because God is gracious and because He gives us peace in Jesus. Though we're weak, we're comforted. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. He talks in verse 8 about being utterly burdened beyond our strength to the point of despairing of life itself. But he says this made us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You can't raise yourself. You, 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 you can't prevent your death. Never mind come back from the dead. But God raises the dead. Trust in Him. When you're weak, be comforted. Not only does the text tell us that, that, that 
We are weak but comforted, but as you, you move past the second chapter in the 11th verse, you see that we are weak but carrying on. Because God is gracious, and because He gives us grace and peace in Jesus. When you're weak, you can not only be comforted, you can keep going. You don't have to stop. You don't have to give up. You don't have to quit. Because He will give you endurance. All that you need. In fact, we, we, we read, Christ, verse 14 of, verse, of chapter 2, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. And so the Apostle Paul finds himself diverted. His plans change. But he can carry on in the strength that God provides. Um, he finds himself doubted. People questioning his credentials and his character. But he can carry on because he has grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. They can carry on too. He, he finds himself feeling like he's ministering in a context of continual darkness. People, it's like there's a, there's a veil over their faces. They can't see. They can't see the truth. They can't take hold of it. They can't believe it. They walk in darkness and, and He says, ah. Now, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So He keeps going. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. By open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. God said, let light shine out of darkness. Chapter 4 verse 6 recalls. But He's shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So He keeps going. Damage. You, you spend any time at all in Christian life and ministry, you begin to feel damaged. Do you not? Maybe, you're, maybe just the past week. Do you feel damaged? Do you feel knocked about? Do you, do, do you feel that there are things that, 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 that distance you from right relationship with God and right relationship with His people perhaps? Or that, that set themselves up against you? Or that are chipping away at you and your resolve? The Apostle Paul says you're not alone. The treasure of the gospel we have in jars of clay. Weak, cheap, dispensable as far as humans see them. To be jostled about, beaten around. But they're also very resilient. And so, we carry on. And as we carry on, we carry in the body the death of Jesus, verse 10 of chapter 4 says, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We're given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And you know, we keep carrying on even through death. Now, I was very specific, not to death, through death. Because death is not the end. But as we carry on in the strength that God provides, even though we're weak, we, we, we get through death into the very presence of God. 
and stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ where we know fully and finally the power of reconciliation. Because we've sinned against God, but Jesus died for us. And He cried out to God and continues to cry out to God on our behalf. Forgive them. Wonderful news. Weak, but carrying on. The grace of God and the peace of God in Jesus Christ working in and through us means that we are not only weak but comforted, not only weak but carrying on, we're weak but we're coming together. So that reconciliation that brings us to God brings us into this room this morning. And, and, And as we go out, it keeps us together in fellowship with one another through the day and through the week. And we're able to continually commune with one another by grace through faith in Jesus who brings us together. As we come together, we, we, we continually sustain ourselves on reflecting the message of coming together. That we are reconciled to God. And then having been refreshed by the message of coming together, we perform the ministry of coming together. So when people have sinned and they repent, we forgive. When, 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 when people call out for forgiveness, we're there to show them, God has forgiven you in Jesus. And I forgive you too. When, uh, when there are other things that would disrupt and divide and discourage, we keep coming together. Why? Because there is something greater than our sins. There is something greater than our differences. There is a Savior who binds all things in perfect unity. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. Verse 2 of chapter 6 says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way. We commend ourselves in every way. We call out to you working with God. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. There are restrictions to coming together. There are things that could get in the way. There's our own sin. In fact, the church at Corinth, he says you're limited by your own affections. You're restricted by your own affections. In verse 12 of chapter 6. We've not restricted you. You can always come to us. And I could, I could say that even pastorally. You could always come to me and speak. You, you know, I could say that of Charles. You could always come to him and speak. You could say that of any of the brothers and sisters in the church. I think you can always come to them and speak as brothers and sisters. Whatever it is on your heart and mind, you're restricted by yourself and your own affections. And then there, there are those things that keep us from coming to God when we should. That's why he says in chapter 7, verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. This, this, um, uh, once we get through those restrictions to coming together, we're, we're, we're then able to know the grief-filled joy of coming together where we're, we're actually um, um, you know, sinning 
but we're repenting and we're forgiving. We're sinning, repenting, forgiving. Someone causes an offense. It might not even be as deep as calling it a sin. Someone offends somebody. And so someone else is offended. But then they come together because Jesus is greater than the offense. And, and, and there's, there's a whole host of practical applications and implications for this particular passage of Scripture. But godly grief, verse 10 of chapter 7, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So some of you are, are not right in your relationship with God because you're sinning. Some of you don't have any grief. Some of you have the wrong kind of grief. You know what you're thinking, saying, and doing is wrong. That it keeps you from God and that it keeps you from right fellowship with other people. But that, that, that sort of grief that you have is, um, is worldly grief because it's not leading to any change. You're not turning from those things, turning to Jesus. You're still stuck. You're feeling bad. It's a bit of remorse. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. It was not a really good thing to do. I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't very nice. I shouldn't have thought that. That was impure. Unkind. But, okay, you've just acknowledged a problem. You've not dealt with it. Or rather, you've not gone to God who can deal with it. You've not turned to Him. You've not gone and made it right with the people that you've offended. You've not, you've not gone and made it right with the people you've sinned against. You've not made it right with the people you've sinned with. Godly grief produces repentance though. Which means, yes, of course, you have to start with that confession. But moving on from that confession, you cannot stay there. Repentance is turning. It's not just turning from sin. Oh, I did wrong. It's turning to Christ. He is everything right. And so I'm going to pursue Him. That then frees us. When we know that, that the, the, the power of coming together with God and with each other, that widens our hearts. The church at Corinth had become very narrow-hearted. Now we talk about being narrow-minded. But um, Paul talks about being narrow-hearted. He urges the Corinthians to widen their hearts. That is, when we come to know the reconciliatory power of the Gospel, our hearts are widened so that we can come together with God and with each other to live lives of generosity. There's this very specific scenario we'll get to in chapters 8, 9 um, uh, that tell us about an opportunity that church had to give. And the lessons that he communicates about giving were, were giving not to get. So, side note, the problem with the prosperity gospel is not so much the prosperity or the gospel. Um, uh, it is the prosperity gospel. It's, it's, joining, it's joining the two. And causing people to desire, desire something that the Scriptures say, don't desire that. Don't chase that. Okay, um, It's also a problem, some people think it's about giving. Oh, they all talk about giving. Yes, there's a difference between those who talk about giving to get back and those who talk about just giving because Christ is worthy. 
and because His people have needs. And because it's a very practical, functional, helpful thing to do that also serves as an act of worship. Big difference. So, um, uh, widening our hearts um, um, is a product of coming together. And um, we, we, we see that worked out in many ways within generous lives. Finally, if we would know the grace and peace of God applied to us in our weakness, when we're frail and when we're foolish, we will know that though we're weak, we're also confident. Weak but comforted. Weak but carrying on. Weak but coming together. Weak but confident. So, remember I told you that most of the church apologized to Paul. Most of the church um, uh, sought reconciliation. But that means that there were some who did not. And Paul cannot just move on without addressing those who have not. You know, there are times where you do move on. There are times where you apply the proverb that says, um, uh, you know, do not respond to a, a fool according to his folly. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. But if you read the other verse that is immediately alongside that one, you will see, answer a fool according to his folly. So which is it? Depends on the context. This is a man who is a servant of Jesus Christ who is being publicly defamed, not only to the disruption of his ministry, but to the destabilization of the church, such that they are rejecting everything he's ever told them about God, Christ, and the gospel, and they're walking in darkness as a result. Or they're gravitating in that direction. It's time to answer the fools according to their folly. And so the apostle apologizes several times for being foolish. He interrupts his train of thought multiple times by saying, I know, I'm speaking like a madman, but hear me out. And you get this sense of this, actually probably a really funny guy, um, in, in some ways, in some context, who's communicating through multiple layers of very strong and pointed speech, sometimes a little dash of sarcasm, but of a righteous, well-used variety, and, um, and is, um, is employing that for the health of the local church. As he does so, he uses a series of paradoxes, contradictions, things like gentle boldness. Those don't seem to go together, do they? Someone who's bold, but gentle. Humble boasting, even less so. That doesn't make sense. He talks about how humble they've been, but then he says, we will boast, but we won't boast without limits. In other words, we're not going to, to boast about stuff we can't boast about, but we are going to boast about stuff we can boast about. As he says elsewhere, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so he keeps bringing it not back to himself, but back to Jesus and the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit working through him. Divine jealousy. Jealousy seems very undivine at surface level, does it not? I mean, we, we tend to equate jealousy with some sort of nasty person sort of like seething over there at the other side. Someone, you know, I don't know. We have parents with young children. 
Do you ever see in your children fits of jealousy or emotions of jealousy? Someone's getting a little too much attention. Yeah, and, and so because they're getting a little too much attention, the other, the other sort of stewing resentfully over at the side. And then they sort, of, they, they, they sort of jump in always just because they feel like, oh, I'm missing out. It's not really something that's... Uh, um, it's not a good emotion, is it? And that carries on working out through, through adulthood and it manifests in more dangerous and unpleasant ways if it's not controlled and sanctified. But... There is good jealousy. There is divine jealousy, in fact. And Paul has a divine jealousy for the church at Corinth. And the best jealousy is the sort of jealousy that's attached to marriage. Because there's a certain kind of love that a man should only be giving to his wife. And if the wife is jealous of her husband because he's showing that kind of love to someone else, that's actually a good, that's a valid jealousy. Please don't weaponize that on me, ladies, this week, right? Just, you know, Pastor Ryan said, likewise, sisters, uh, uh, when, when, um, uh, when wives are showing that kind of attention to, to some other man, to some other person, that the husband feels neglected. The husband feels, oh, I'm not really, okay. There's some jealousy there. Our attentions are diverted. So it's, it's natural human relationships. And it's actually a sign of a healthy, a healthy relationship. Because the husband and the wife should love one another in a special way that is exclusive to them. Paul says, I married you to Jesus. I gave you as a bride to Jesus Christ. But you're not really always acting like it, are you? Your thoughts are being led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Divine jealousy. Wise foolishness. So he, he begins to list all of the stuff he's done and all of the things that he's suffered. And he says, I'm foolish for doing this. I don't know why I'm talking about myself like this. But he's wisely employing that to both demonstrate his weakness and simultaneously God's power through him. Strong weakness, which is the undergirding theme of the whole book. That God is strong and we are weak. And our weakness highlights God's strength. That leads to, into the conclusion, burdensome joy. He doesn't want to be a burden, but he's afraid that He will be a burden and that He will be further burdened. But He rejoices in the work that God is doing in His people. Even a dysfunctional church like the church at Corinth, He repeatedly says He's rejoicing in them. He even says He boasts in them. They've caused Him so much harm, so much pain. The brothers who've been reading through 2 Timothy will know that Paul can dish out um, more unpleasant things if he wants to. The Lord repay, you know, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord repay him according to his works. What were his works? He did me great harm. What does it mean God repaying him according to his works? <laughs> you don't want to be Alexander the coppersmith. But here, though this church has caused him such harm, 
Paul rejoices in them. And he's burdened that they know and love Jesus and that they that be seen in their life. He feels like a failure sometimes. But he finds his success, his sufficiency in Jesus. And so it's okay being a successful failure. When we're weak, he is strong. Are you ready to be weak? You are weak. Are you ready to admit that you're weak? Are you ready to just be weak and to embrace the strength of God in Christ? There are five lessons that he concludes with. Finally, brothers, rejoice. You can rejoice in strength that's not your own. Aim for restoration. It's difficult. Doesn't always happen. But aim for it. Comfort one another. You're not the only one who's weak. Someone else is weak too. You know, maybe the person that you've offended is weak or maybe the person who has offended you is weak maybe people you've fallen out with are weak maybe people who have have sinned in certain ways and you just can't get past that they did that they're weak you're weak too we're all in the same club same family we're weak so let's comfort one another agree with one another Certainly, uh, Paul has talked in 1 Corinthians about disagreements that we might have, and there's space for that. There's liberty for some people to say one thing and other people to say another. And, and, and you know, if it, to them, in their heart, in their conscience, this is the right thing to do, and it's not breaking any moral law of Scripture, then that's fine. There's liberty. In fact, there's far more liberty that is given in Scripture than many people, including many churches, are prepared to allow. Liberty. Means that we can agree with one another. Which is, is, is less about saying, I tick all of the boxes, or cross all of the T's, or jot all of the I's. But it's more about having an agreeable nature and spirit to one another in Jesus Christ. Because we're family in Christ. And what God has brought together, let no one tear asunder. Live in peace. And he says, the God of peace, the God of love and peace, will be with you. That's what happens when we know the, the God of love and peace. When we receive His grace and when we receive His peace in Jesus, we can say, I'm weak, but I'm comforted. I'm weak but I'm carrying on. I'm weak, but I will keep coming together. I'm weak, but I'm confident that God is able, that He has all power in His hands, that He's strong, that He is sufficient, and His grace is enough for me. Amen.